Well, City Light Lincoln Church, it's good to see all of you this morning. My name is Austin, and I'm one of the pastors here. And man, for the last uh, four months or so, we've been walking through the Gospel of John. So we've been walking through it, kind of verse by verse, just going through, and it's been such a joy. And man, in this process... I feel like I've seen Jesus as is more personal. He's become more uh, powerful to me, and, and just in general, just more more like Jesus has been better. He's just been so good to see who he truly is. And, and so I hope that's happened for you as well. As we've walked through this book, that you see Jesus for who he truly is. But, but consequently, by seeing how good Jesus is, I've also come to see how unlike Jesus I can be right? Like, oh, he's so amazing. And my natural response is, okay, maybe I'm not that, right? Like, I, I'm not, I'm not um, striving. I'm not batting a thousand on this. And so, uh, man, Jesus uh, is, is perfectly humble, and, I, and I'm oftentimes selfish, right? Like, Jesus is always forgiving, and I like to hold grudges. Uh, Jesus is always patient, and I like things according to my time, Jesus is constantly pointing to the glory of the Father, and yet I trick myself into thinking this life's about me. Friends, I have a lot of room to grow, both spiritually and physically. And so anyways, um, man, but... but uh thought about throwing that in there for you guys. Uh, but anyways, uh, kind of loosen us up a little bit. It's going to be a fun morning. Um, but, but I just realized, man, Jesus has changed me drastically in just, just an amazing way since I've placed my faith in him. But man, I, I have so many areas that I need to be more like Jesus in. Um, and oftentimes, Christ and the Christian are very, look very different. Does that make sense? It was, it was Gandhi, the Hindu leader, that said, I actually like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians and your Christ are, are so unlike each other. They, they don't um, seem to be like each other. And so I want to ask the question, man, for everyone in the room, has anyone in, in the room ever been hurt by a Christian? Or if you're, if you're a Christian, man, have you ever hurt somebody else? Or to take it a step deeper and just ask the general question, has anyone in this room perfectly represented Jesus 100% of the time? The answer unanimously is no, right? We're sinful and Jesus is perfect. And so, but in John 13, we get this command by Jesus, this, these verses that we just read, that Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. And if you do this, the world will know you're my disciples. They will know we are Christians by our love, right? So there seems to be this discrepancy. And, and, and let's be honest, friends, I don't have a city light sticker on the back of my car. Okay, I don't got the Jesus fish because your boy gets a little crazy in Lincoln. All right, when I'm driving around, I don't always represent my Lord and Savior. Okay, and so I'm like, I don't want people to know I'm, I'm a Christian because they're not gonna be like, that dude is not a Christian when I'm driving. Okay, so, uh, but right, so <laughs> this is some advice. If you got a Jesus sticker and you're cutting somebody off, maybe getting a finger, don't do that. Okay, like uh, take that city light sticker off. But anyways. Um, uh, someone's like, that's a great idea. I'm like, I don't know if it is, actually. We create little city light stickers. So, um, but man, Jesus still, he still gives us the mission to represent him, right? In, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our messiness, in the midst of our uh, chaotic kind of personalities, he still gives us the mission to re- represent him here on earth. But here's the tension I find with this passage. Here's the rub I find with it. If Jesus is so good, why have his followers historically been so bad? You with me on that? And that attention we find, what do, you, what do you mean, Jesus? They'll know we're Christians, but, but you're so beautiful and, and Christian seems to be messy. And so how does that go together? And I have a friend uh, and she told me that she wishes church was like AA. 
Okay, every time she walks into Alcoholics Anonymous, she's greeted with a smile. Doesn't matter if she's hungover, doesn't matter if she smells like beer, doesn't matter if she has makeup or she's wearing the right clothes, she's greeted immediately. And in this place, everyone has a common brokenness and a common mess. And so the more messed up you are, the more loved you are. There's no comparison. There's just a mutual brokenness that says, yeah, me too, right? And she made the observation and she said, for all of my life, those two have been complete. Op- the church has been the opposite of AA. She's walked in, felt judged. She's got some weird look. She's been asked to leave. She said, no, I don't think this is the right place for you. And, f- and family, that's the opposite of Jesus's mission, isn't it? That's the opposite of the Bible. And what Je- Jesus specifically wasn't like because he was friends with the wrong crowd. He was friends with people that didn't look right or hang or hold up to the religious standard of the time. And so the short answer to my question of why we don't love like Jesus is because we're sinful, right? Like we're just broken and messy and, and, we, and we're rule, it seems like we're ruled by our flesh. And so for the rest of our lives, you, if you're a believer, you're going to have to battle between the spirit of God working in you and your flesh, right? Those two are going to hit and you have to pray the spirit of God overcomes your fleshly desire. So that's the short answer. We're sinful. But we'll see in John 13 that the more specific reason that we don't love like Jesus is because we love our glory more than we love the glory of God. The reason we don't love like Jesus is because we love our glory more than we love the glory of God. We're often man-centered. And in our sin, our greatest concern becomes ourselves and not our God. We're often ruled by love of the world and love for ourselves and not the love of God. City Light, in our sin, we love our glory more than we love the glory of God. And so the main point I see in these verses, and as as I came into this text this week or last week, I'm like, I'm going to preach on love, and I'm going to get it. You love each other. And I'm like, this is about glory. And it is about love, but for the purpose of glory. And so we'll we'll see that. So the main point I want us to walk away with from John 13 is that God is glorified when his followers follow in his footsteps. God is glorified when his followers follow in his footsteps. So let's open up John 13, and we'll see this for ourselves. We'll just read verses 31 through 33 again. Now, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Would you pray with me? Jesus, man, I'm so compelled, and so uh, we, we just need you. I can give biblical arguments, and, and I can show why your glory is beautiful, and why we should love your glory, and how much you love me, but God, I know, I know, I know that your spirit is the only one that can make our hearts love you. I can maybe make us intellectually agree, but God, you, by your spirit, have to come in this room to make us understand your glory and your goodness. And so, Jesus, I pray you do that today. I pray that you would guide my words, that you would uh, exalt yourself, Jesus, that you would be glorified this morning. And so I love you. Thank you for all you are. In your name, amen. Cool. So my first point uh, this morning is the glory of God is our goal. The glory of God is our goal. That's point one. So to catch us up on what's happening in John 13, Jesus was just down on his divine hands and knees, washing the dirty feet of his disciples. 
That's what Jesus has been up to. One of which is a man named Judas. Okay, And Judas would later betray Jesus. Now, this wasn't a surprise to Jesus. He predicted it. And yet in his divine grace, he still washed Judas's feet. It doesn't really make sense. It's a beautiful picture of his grace. And so after announcing that someone was going to betray him, Judas is like, peace, I'm out. Go leaves into the night. And once he's gone, the atmosphere just seems to clear. And Jesus gets with his homeboys and he's like, hey guys, like here's here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going down. And he talks about his death and his ultimate resurrection and return to heaven. So that's what Jesus is going. That kind of sets the, the, the tone and the setting for it. But let me ask a question. How many of us in the room know City Light Lincoln's mission statement? You don't have to raise your hand, but just think about it. How many of you in the room know our mission statement? And if you call this church a home, probably be a good idea to know it, right? Uh, well, so we know. I'll give you guys the answer. Our mission is that we exist to glorify God by multiplying Jesus-centered disciples and churches. That's it. Not too, not too, not too crazy. We glorify God by multiplying Jesus-centered disciples and churches. And to some, listen, it might sound redundant to say that we're doing this for the glory of God, right? But we don't want to assume that it's implied, okay? We want to be explicitly clear that everything we do, every decision we make, every dollar we spend is for solely the glory of God. Not for the, the, the praise of City Light, not for the hype of man, not for the acknowledgement of Mo and Austin, but for the glory of God alone. And we feel like that's exactly what Jesus lived like, for, for the Father's glory. And, and, and so with all of that, man, look at, look at verses 31 and 32. Five times, as you look through that, Jesus says the word glorified. Okay, so glory becomes the theme in these verses, And it's unique that Jesus chooses to talk about glory right after he was just in the form of a slave washing people's feet. Like, Jesus, those two don't seem to go together. And then he says in verse 33, hey, guys, where I'm going, you can't go. He's talking about his resurrection and his death, right? He said, hey, you guys can't go with me. So wait, Jesus, you want to talk about glory after you're talking about washing people's feet, and then you want to talk about glory and dying on a sinner's cross, like that doesn't make sense. That doesn't seem too glorious. And from a human perspective, the death of Jesus was humiliating and an excruciating act. But from a divine perspective, it was the revealing the glory of God. That's what God was doing in that. And Jesus is revealing the glory of God. And let me just say, glory simply refers to, to the splendor of God in his presence. It's just who he is. He's just glorious. So it's just focusing in on, on the splendor of who God is. So that's what I, I mean when we say glory. Now, Gerard Arad, if I'm pronouncing that right, is the French ambassador in the United States. Okay, so France has handpicked this man to represent their country. Why? Because he embodies everything that France cares for, right? They, they trust him. They believe in him and anything that Ambassador Gerard does reflects on France, right? And in the same way, Jesus is God's perfect ambassador sent to earth to glorify and represent the Father. So it should be clear that any action done by God's representative is to honor God, right? It's to, it's to go. So say, uh, and that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 31. Now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. Okay. So if the French ambassador wins an award 
and wins an honor, who does that honor go to? France, not, not Gerard, right? Like it goes, it goes even higher on to France. And in the same way, every honor bestowed on Jesus or on the Christian is actually gift, geared towards the Father. That's how it works. And so let me ask this question. And I want you to actually think about it. What was Jesus's primary mission? What, what, what was Jesus's primary mission on earth? Some might say to die for sins, which is a good answer. Some might say to, to heal people. Some might say to teach people. Some might say to liberate the oppressed, which are all good answers. But those are just means to his ultimate goal. City Light, Jesus's mission was to glorify the Father. That, that was his mission. And yes, he died for sins, but for the purpose of glorifying the Father. Yes, he, he taught and he healed and he, and he freed uh, the, the oppressed people, but it was all for the point of glorifying his Father. Now, how, how did Jesus glorify the Father, though? Right? Because we know, you know that's his goal, but how did he do it? Well, in John 17, 4, it's Jesus' high priestly prayer. He prays this. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And that's the way that all of us glorify God, right? By doing his will for his glory. And so for Jesus, not a great, not a great, like he kind of got the short straw if you're asking me, but his mission, his way to glorify God was to, was to go and die for sinners and then be raised again and ascend into heaven. That was Jesus's, that was God's will for Jesus. And let's be very, 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 very clear. God's will for displaying glory is often radically different than how we think glory is expressed isn't it? Think about from the very beginning of John. The glory of God, the glorification of God doesn't come by a knight in shining armor riding in on a big white horse, does it? It comes by a helpless baby. And as we'll see as we walk through Jesus's life, John shows that the ultimate glorification of Jesus, the ultimate pinnacle, supreme, divine self-disclosure is the cross of Jesus where shame and glory are interwoven together, while suffering and glory are interwoven. And so we, we have to be honest, man, to glorify God doesn't mean we get earthly glory. And I know that's hard to hear and we want to grind against it, but man, it oftentimes means the opposite. For Jesus to glorify the Father and be glorified meant that he was stripped of all his earthly glory. This man was stripped naked, beaten, alone, abandoned with no one to advocate for him. And yet in that moment, he was, the father was greatly glorified and he glorified Jesus. In City Light, we glorify Jesus the way Jesus glorified the father by doing his will for his glory. And if I can do anything this morning, as I was praying, God, would you just do something in our people? It would be to invite our entire church to live for and love the glory of God. If I can invite you guys to do anything, it would be to live for and enjoy the glory of God. But why is that important? Why why does it matter that we're being specific about glory, right? Well, because it's very easy to do Christian things for the glory of our own selves, right? It's really easy to get wrapped up in your religious resume and not point to the glory of God. We can make Christianity, Christianity about us. We can make the Bible about us. We can make the mission of God about us. But friends, it's all about Jesus, right? Every, everything we do, every word in this book in the Bible points to Jesus as the hero. We have to see that, that God is relentlessly showing us that he is working for us, not we for him. 
He, he's the skillful physician, we're the weak patient. He's the wind, we're the sails. We are the weak, he's the strong, we're the MC, he's the main act, we're the helpless baby, he's the loving father. Jesus is the hero. And if for a second we start to twist those reality, uh, realities around, we start to strive for our own glory. And that's when we don't love like Jesus. See, we're called to magnify him, to let him take the made stage and get the glory because he's worthy of it. And let me say this about the glory of God. If everyone in this room and every some two or three billion people in the world said, I'm done with Jesus, I'm done with God, I'm running away and never praising him again, God would not be less glorious. We can't take away his glory. He's infinitely glorious. The only thing is, the only thing in us glorifying him is us coming to reality, right? Like, like so I'm saying God is not insecure. He's not thinking, man, I need these people to glorify me because if they don't, well, then I'm just going to shrink and disappear. No, he is infinitely glorious. Nothing you do, say, or act can ever take away from his glory. But in his glorious grace, he says, the best thing for you is to see me as glorious because I'm the only thing that will satisfy does that make sense? So um, this isn't a plea for you guys to say, oh man, I want, I want to say God's glorious so that he somehow is lifted up. No, God is infinitely glorious. Nothing we can do will ever strip that away. He's not insecure. He's saying he's for his glory because he's for your good. And the best thing for you is to see his glory because it's infinitely satisfying and, and not the glory of man. Okay, does that make sense? So we're all on the same page on that. And so, uh, man, the glory of God is our goal. So having announced his departure uh, and then informing the disciples of what he wanted to do, Jesus begins to lay out what he expects of them. Okay, and that leads us to our second point. But let's read verses 34 and 35. 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. My second point is that the love of God and others is our means. So the glory of God is our goal, and point two is the love of God and others is our means. Who here likes the autocorrect on your phones? Uh, well, some awkward conversations have came from that, right? Like some crazy happened. So, but, but have you ever noticed... Uh, that, uh, that sometimes w- when I type the word love, it autocorrects it to live. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, and so if you notice, it'll be stuck in your head every time it does it now. But I feel like it's God reminding me that love is a verb, not a noun, right? He's saying love is something you do, not just you talk about. It's something you live out, but it's far easier to talk about than to do, right? Love is, is difficult. And so in verse 34, though, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. Now, we don't naturally get excited about new commandments. We're like, praise Jesus, we got a new commandment, right? We're not like, we're not doing that. And, and none of us are in the room. We're like, hey, honey, man, I've been thinking about my birthday's coming up and I just really want a couple new commands, right? Like, no, thank you. I'm gonna try to stay away from commands, okay? But, but we, we'll see as, as we dig into God's word that, that his commands are, are far more for our joy than for our displeasure, Okay? And they're far more for our good than for our belittlement. No, they're, they're good and, and, and they're amazing. And so we have to see, as we talk about commands, probably the Ten Commandments comes to mind, right? Um, well, um, we have to understand that 
The Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 don't start with verse 3, the first command, thou shalt not have any other gods. The Ten Commandments actually start with the foundation of God's love. Okay, so in verse two, uh, this, is, this is the whole preface of all the 10 commandments. Jesus, or the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the preface. So listen, before God ever gives his commands for his people, he shows them his commitment to them. Isn't that beautiful? Before a command comes God's reminder of his commitment. So it's only when you understand the freeing act of God that you recognize the joy of being obedient to his divine commands, right? So a command without its context is meaningless. And God's saying, man, you, you can trust me. Like, I, I've provided for you. I, I've been there for you. And so you know that my commands are for your good, right? Like that's, that's what he's saying. And don't you see the same thing happening in John 13? Jesus just displayed this glorious act of grace by washing these disciples' dirty feet. And then it's only after that that he gives the divine command. Friends, Jesus isn't saying because I said so. He's saying because I did so. That's his compelling reminder to say, no, I'm not just telling you to blindly obey. I'm saying you can trust me. The commandment to love one another has almost no meaning apart from its contextual presupposition, I have loved you. And and listen, our natural response to any command is always, why should I obey? Right? Like, man, why should should I obey? And, And that's a perfectly legitimate question, by the way. But our response is, because Jesus obeyed right? Why should I love? Because Jesus loved. Why should I honor God? Because Jesus honored God. Why should I give up everything? Because Jesus gave up everything. Listen, we have to understand this. Jesus Christ is not a slave driver trying to get you to be productive. He's a friend that's leading the way and inviting you into his glorious ministry. And you can work and you can do Christian things, and you can serve and lead all with a begrudging and angry heart. But you cannot love unless you first have been loved by him. Does that make sense? But, but, but why did Jesus say this is a new command? He prefaced that, and it's not new because nothing like this has ever been said before, right? In Deuteronomy 6, 5, uh, God calls his people to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in Leviticus 19, 18, God says, hey, love your neighbor as yourself. And so this isn't a new idea to, to love people, but we have to ask the question, how is this command new, right? Well, I want us to see that the standard for love has changed because of Jesus in two primary ways. This love demanded a new object and a new measure. Okay, a new object and a new measure. And so for the object, uh, it's found in verse 34, and it's one another. Okay, the object of our love is one another. Now, one another was unique because this world at the time was split between Jews and Gentiles, right? Between male and female, uh, learned and ignorant, um, a slave or master, but in Christ, all of them are united, This community was no longer held together by geographical positioning or family heritage or political preference. It was held together by love. And Jews at this time, by the way, were considered the most narrow-minded, bigoted, and intolerant nation on the face of the earth. 
They operated out of this like elitist mentality that they were better than everybody else. And you know what that sounds like today? You know what has a perception of that same thing today? Christianity. And that's humbling, and, it, and it's hard to admit, but really, the outside world looks to Christianity, the people that aren't in the church, or maybe the people that are in the church, and would say, this group looks bigoted and narrow-minded and, and hateful and hurtful, and they think they're better than everybody else. Man, the Christian church today is perceived as a country club, not a family for the broken. Like the Jews of this day, Christians can very easily slip into spending time just around other Christians spending time with people that, that are like them and won't cause them any friction or any, any tension, right? Left to ourselves, we seek our own. Movie stars, they marry movie stars, right? Middle-class people seek out middle-class pe- people. Bikers look for bikers. Like, it's just how it, it works, right? But, but when Christ comes, he changes all of that. In the church of Jesus, we discover that the people we love are different than us in the real depth of love, right? So the more we see Jesus's love for us, the greater the diversity of the church will be. So you want to measure in the room, you're thinking, how how am I doing on that? Look around the room and see if you can find people that are different than you that you've had over to dinner or that you know. That's a good measure to say. And and let me say this, in loving people that are the same as you isn't that hard, it's easy. It's, it, it, it's, it's just enjoyable. It's, it's easy to function together, but loving people that are different, meshing cultures, breaking down history, that's where love is expressed. Man, if you've ever been to a Husker football game, which if you haven't, you should, um, but if you've ever been there, you've noticed people from all different walks of life right? You get black, white, Hispanic, Asian, uh, city people, small town farmers, rich, poor, middle class, Republican, Democrat, independent, all coming together, bonded over one thing. What is that? Husker football, right? People that know literally nothing else besides you like Husker football because you got a hat on, right? Or like a a finger, you know, like, 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 they know nothing else, but they would say, you're, they're high-fiving, they're celebrating, they're laughing, they're borrowing each other's binoculars, like, I mean, all this stuff, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh. And, and as I look to this, as I see this play out, I'm thinking, how much more should the church of Jesus be bonded together? How, how much more should, when we see another believer, should we say, oh my, the same Jesus saved you? Like, how much more bonding is that than a, than a hobby of football? And listen, though their bond seems real, it's actually very superficial. Because in in football, man, you're bonding over one hobby, but the cards could fall. You have a bad season, anything could happen. But the bond of the church, the bond of Christians, we're bought by the blood of Jesus. That's the uniting factor that we have together. Do you see the difference? What if church looked like a Husker game? Or even better than that. But just to say, man, what if we were coming in? What's up, man? Oh, that sermon was awesome. Awesome was saying some jokes. Most beard looks good. He was preaching the gospel. Right? Like, what if our church is like, that was awesome? You know, like, like, but I just, there seems to be this massive gap. And it's like people come into church and we're serious and, and, and we're, we're, we're not joyful. And we kind of come in right on time and we leave right after the church gets over. And like the Husker game, people come an hour earlier and leave an hour later. And it's just, Seems like there's this gap when we love Husker football more than we love Jesus. 
convicting to me, friends, because I fall into that. So Jesus changes the command to love by giving a new object, one another. Not just your neighbor, not just people like you, but one another. And Jesus also changed the command for love by its measure, namely, as I have loved you. So in verse 34, Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you were also to love one another. Now, to fully understand what Jesus means by loving like he loves, we have to answer the question, well, what did Jesus love like, right? So he served and he healed and he was humble and all these things. But man, this Jesus loved us enough to leave perfect heaven to come to sinful earth. This Jesus loved us enough to not come as a condemning king, but to come as a humble, forgiving king. This Jesus uh, loved us enough to not let us die in our sins, but he came to die for our sins. This Jesus loved loved us enough to be spit on, mocked, and scorned. He loved us enough to be the only way to come to the Father. He loved us enough to be hurt and belittled and to be separated from the Father. He loved us enough to give up the praise of the angel's lips for the hateful scoffer's shouts. That's how Jesus loved. An infinite cost. His life for ours. And so, man, as hard as it is to to love uh, your neighbor as yourself, how much harder is it to love like Jesus? (laughs) Do you see that gap? And so this new command that Jesus gives, love one another as I have loved you, it's simple enough for a toddler to understand, right? But it's also difficult enough to humble even the most mature believers to say, I'm not doing that perfectly. So if you're in the room and you're like, actually, Austin, I'm doing pretty good at this whole loving people. Oh, really? How are you doing compared to Jesus, right? Like that's the question that comes like, oh, you think you're batting a thousand, bro? Like step up. Jesus is a little different. And so, man, but it, it humbles us, right? It should say the standard for love is not how am I doing compared to the person next to me? Because if we do that, we start to rationalize, we start to justify. The standard for love is Jesus's love. That's what we strive towards. He loved radically, humbly, and extravagantly. And friends, when we love like Jesus, it's a convincing argument for the reality of the gospel. So I have this friend, and he told me a story about a Bible study he was in. And, and these guys met uh, weekly and just walked through the Bible. And, and there was this man that came that didn't believe in Jesus yet. He didn't place his faith in Jesus yet, but he showed up consistently, right? And so he's there, he's hanging out. And every week they have that awkward conversation at the end, like, anyone want to accept Jesus? There's like six dudes in the room and five are believers. You know, it's like... <laughs> Bro, let's just kind of get to this whole thing, right? So, but anyways, they, so they're like, anyone want to accept it? And they look kind of looking at him, you know, just stayed silent. And so, he, you know, he, he hadn't placed his faith in Jesus yet. And then on one Bible study, on, on this one occasion, uh, uh, the man's wife and his, uh, the leader, his wife and kids got uh, in an argument. And so the leader runs up the stairs to go see, you know, what, what's going on. And, and the unbelieving man followed behind him, right? So he followed behind him. And, and the leader, he walks right up to his wife and he gives her a kiss. And he says, sweetie, I love you. You're a great mom. You're doing a great job. And he turned, he knelt down to his kids. And he said, hey, kiddos, what's going on? He corrected them, said, you need to respect your mother. And then he reminded them and encouraged them with the gospel. Jesus loves you. He died for you. And, 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 and so the leader didn't know that the unbelieving man was watching, right? And so the unbelieving man like walks back downstairs, gets in the group. And as the leader like finishes up, he, he comes back downstairs. And as he sits down, the unbelieving man, the once silent man says, I, I want to place my faith in Jesus. For the past few months, I've heard about the love of God, but today I saw it. 
Isn't that amazing? Friends, oftentimes people will trust the Christian before they trust Christ. This is how it works. I don't know why, but we're given this incredible and challenging task, the task of loving like Jesus loved. The question becomes, what's the purpose of this love? Right, why? Why? And that's, that's um, in verse 35, where Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now listen, I know this might sound weird and this might grind against our hearts for a second, but loving people isn't the ultimate goal for the Christian. Loving people isn't our end goal. It's not. See, loving people is the means to our ultimate goal, which is glorifying God. So if you hand out a soup, uh, if you hand out soup every day for the rest of your life, but never tell the person who spiritually feeds you, then you've, you've only helped them temporarily, right? And so if you go and pay off someone's debt and are super generous, but you never tell them who spiritually paid off your debt, you're missing the point, point of helping. It's only a temporary fix. See, people have a deeper need and we can fill it. And so we, we have to commit our lives to pointing people to Jesus. And, and a few years ago, my wife called me and, and she was excited about this new concept that she had heard. And so she told me, and, and it was this phrase and it said, always preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And I was like, man, I'm pretty encouraged by that. Like always preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. And so I'm like, man, that's awesome. But as I started to think about it and dig through my Bible about it, I realized that I don't fully agree with that statement we have to see that people aren't saved by seeing our good works. They're saved by hearing the good works of Jesus and putting their faith in him. So think about it, man. You, you, you're driving, you pull over out on the side of the road and you see someone and you help them out with a flat tire. They're not gonna immediately go, you know what? You're a Christian and Jesus died for my sins, right? Like they're not gonna do that. You have to tell them, you know? And in the same way, man, Jesus, you look at his life, like he's healing people and doing these amazing miracles and he could have just walked away and left, but what's he do? He points to the father, right? Like there's, there's a purpose in all the things that Jesus did. And it wasn't just to do those things. It was to point to the glory of the father. City Light, if there are no words, there is no gospel. If there are no words, there is no gospel. So I would change that statement. I would tweak it to say, always preach the gospel with your life and use words if possible. Like use words at every possible means you can. So Jesus says, man, they will know we're Christians by our love. Not just good people, not just nice people. Our actions have to point to Jesus. So let me ask you this question. Again, I like asking questions. I want you guys to think about these things. What is the ultimate prize for you following Jesus? What's the ultimate prize? What's your greatest possession? What are you most excited for? Is it the forgiveness of sins? Is it escaping hell? Is it getting into heaven? Is it the family that God adopts you into? I mean, all of those things are amazing, but they pale in comparison to the ultimate gift, which is God himself. That's the ultimate prize for the Christian, God himself. Not just forgiveness of sins, that's amazing, but we get something better, God. And in his book, John Piper, uh, in his book, God is the Gospel, he, he asked this. This is convicting, so let me just pray. So calm our hearts and listen to this. The critical question for our generation and every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, 
and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all nature's beauty you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict and no natural disasters. Could you be satisfied in heaven if Jesus were not there? I mean, I have to ask the question, is your view of heaven consumed with yourself or consumed with the celebration that you get to be with Jesus? Those two are vastly different. So if you don't like Jesus, heaven's going to suck, man. Like, because it's all about him. It is. I mean, it's just like, that's the point of it. And so we have to see like, yeah, it's going to be beautiful and no pain and all those things. But the whole point of those is Jesus himself. Now, I said earlier that the reason Christians don't love like Jesus is because we love our glory more than we love the glory of God, right? That was my argument. And so at the core of our problems, we don't see Jesus as glorious as he truly is, right? That's, that's our problem. And so our only hope is for the Spirit of God to come into our lives and, and allow us to see how infinitely better Jesus is. So when we operate out of selfishness, we forget Jesus's infinite humility. When we operate out of anger, we forget his infinite grace and forgiveness. When we operate out of greed, we forget Jesus's infinite generosity. When we covet and yearn for things we don't have, we forget Jesus's infinite value. Do you see it? We don't love like Jesus because we don't love God. And we don't love God, we don't love Jesus because we don't fully see the glory of God and remind ourselves daily of how amazing and all-sufficient and glorious that he is. That's, that's the problem. And so, man, if you've, if you've ever been hurt by a Christian, if you've ever been hurt by a Christian, I'm sorry for not representing him perfectly. I'm sorry. That's on me. I haven't, I haven't done a great job of it. But, but there's a misconception that if, if the Christian is broken, well, then Christ is broken. And my plea to all of us in the room is to define Jesus primarily by who he is and not by who I am. That doesn't give any Christian a crutch or escape to say, I don't need to represent Jesus. But all I'm saying is, would our primary definition of Jesus be who he is and not who we are? Christians are weak. We're fragile, and we're often not as thoughtful as we should be. So if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus because you have a bad taste in your mouth, would you open up your Bible? Would you learn for yourself who this Jesus is and pray that he would allow your heart to see and accept his glory? You can do that today. Like, just to lay that on the table, say, Jesus, I want to know you for who you are. And for the Christian in the room, for all of us in the room, Man, rather than being consumed with our own benefit, our own pleasure, and our own glory, would we be consumed with the mission of God? Would we see Jesus' mission to glorify God and make that our own? (laughs) What if at the end of your life, someone came to you and said, even just if it's one person, I know Jesus better because I know you? Wouldn't that be incredible? I I I trust Jesus because you earned my trust and you trusted me. What if someone said, man, I felt hated by Jesus because Christians have hated me, but you're, you, you're different. You loved me and pointed me to love of Jesus. 
Friends, would there be any greater joy than for our lives to be so soaked in Jesus that everyone around us couldn't help but to see his glory displayed through our lives and through the way we use our words? So love one another as Jesus has loved you. He is ultimately the only one worthy of glory and praise. Amen.